Hello again to the Customers Who Click podcast. I'm your host, Will Lawrenson. On this episode, I have a guest from one of the biggest brands in the world. Tristan Burns is the analytics lead at Pizza Hut Digital Ventures, and today we'll be talking about one of my favorite topics, conversion optimization. I think conversion optimization is a bit misunderstood and treated as a bit of a luxury by a lot of companies. It's not seen as a key marketing department. It's more of a, we'll do it if we have the resource sort of area. When I talk to other marketers and people in e-commerce, the key things that tend to come up again and again are landing pages and call to actions. And that seems to be what most people think conversion optimization is about. It is, but, uh, but it's not. A key part of conversion, and this is the part most people understand, is that it's about getting people who land on your website to convert as quickly and as cheaply as possible. However, the bit that they miss out of the thought process is customer value. You also want these people to be converting at the highest value as possible. And by doing this, you're not necessarily aiming for the lowest CPA. You're better off paying $20 for a customer who spends $100 than $10 for a customer who spends $20. You'll probably also find that the $20 customer spends more in the long term, but that's a separate conversation. Anyway, I'll get Tristan on so we can hear about what's going on at Pizza Hut Digital Ventures. Hi, Tristan. Welcome to the Customers Who Click podcast. Uh, If you could tell us a bit about yourself, why you do what you do. Sure thing. Um, First of all, thanks for having me, Will. It's great to be here. So I am the analytics lead at Pizza Hut Digital Ventures. First of all, Pizza Hut Digital Ventures is, um, you know, as you would be well aware, Pizza Hut is the you know global pizza brand, and Digital Ventures is their um, e-commerce solution that we're currently building and scaling out globally in order to create a consistent brand experience across all the markets in which Pizza Hut operates. So we don't actually make or sell any pizzas, but we are basically am in control of the digital experience, optimizing for customers, user experience, all that jazz. So my role um, at Pizza Hut Digital Ventures is to, uh, first of all, uh, it's kind of twofold, which might be a little bit um, unusual for a lot of analysts out there. I have the, the, the task of being a business intelligence person, so ensuring that reporting is in place for tracking transactions and business performance updates um, to senior management. Um, letting the team know how we're tracking towards our targets and our goals for the year, a lot of forecasting as well around um, where we expect to hit, what the market is doing, um, all that kind of stuff. But probably more relevant to this conversation is my work in conversion rate optimization. So I work with our product teams and our design teams particularly to understand where there are issues in the user experience, um, friction in the funnel, uh, what uh, might not be optimal for for getting the most out of most value out of our transactions and the most transactions out of the sessions that we're getting, and take those take those issues, we measure them, then we come up with tests and we roll out those tests and hopefully um, bring some more business to the site. Okay, yeah, sounds great. So you have kind of complete ownership over the the e-commerce side, right? PHTV, yes. So Pizza Hut's a franchise model, isn't it? So how how, do you have to work with the franchisees quite closely to to make sure you're promoting the right, you know, promoting what they want to promote? Or most definitely, yes. So, um, perhaps, perhaps a little bit more background. Pizza Hut um, International is the is the organisation that we work for. That's all within Yum. Yum is the largest restaurant group in the world, and Pizza Hut United States is a separate business. So, Pizza Hut Inter- International represents the remainder of the world. In most countries that are inside uh, PHI, Um, there are master franchisees, 
and then under them, smaller franchisees. So we typically work with the master franchisee. So in um, some markets, you have one, maybe two large franchisees that own pretty much every single store and they have no minor franchisees under them. But then in other markets, and the UK is an example, uh, we have a master franchisee, which is Pitts Heart UK. And then under them, we have many um, small and large franchisees that own any number of stores. So we typically work with the the higher level and they manage the country, so to speak. So they'll manage um, operations of the stores to make sure that there's enough stock in place, that they're hiring enough people to work in the back of house and front of house. Um, They will make sure that there are drivers for each of the stores and that uh, just that the day-to-day running is is smooth. Uh, As well, in addition to that, they will run um, marketing. So that means offline and online marketing. Where we come in is that we run the online component of their entire operation. Um, so we will. So while they'll drive the traffic to our sites, once the traffic's on our page, that's where it becomes our responsibility, and we will optimize for success for for that part of the business. So we kind of partner with them. Um, it's it's more. It, it might seem in a lot of cases to be sort of a vendor relationship. But in actual fact, we're all part of Yum and we all work together and we own to an extent the, um, the online sales component and they do everything else. Um, so certainly there's a lot of ideas and, and, and input that comes from them, the things that they want to see happen on the website, things that, they, they, that, that their business needs to um, cater for on the site and also any optimizations that we come up with, any plans and and product features that we think are going to benefit business come internally as well. So essentially, ideas can come from from ourselves or from them as well. Um, So what does a standard day look like for you? So there is no standard day, maybe is a good way of putting it. Um, And particularly lately, given that this this recording is taking place uh, right in the middle of the coronavirus, Essentially, I would start the day by taking a look at um, Google Analytics and just seeing that the previous day's uh, transactions were, were smooth, that they were as expected, that com- nothing happened with conversion. Uh, we would try and find if any, um, any services might have gone down, if there were any um, outings anywhere in the, in, the, in the network, and if so, have they impacted transactions? And if they have impacted transactions, I'll need to quickly come up with an estimate of what that has cost us. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a little bit of finger on the pulse stuff early in the day. And then um, depending on what day it is and where we're at with meetings and so on, I will um, generally get down to uh, working with our product team on the stuff that we have on our roadmap. So um, what are we building at the moment? What data can I support to, what, what data can I supply to support whether or not this item should be prioritized? Um, if we have anything that's recently gone live, um, are we measuring it? What, how is it performing? Is there anything we need to tweak? Um, and then tests as well. So are there any live tests um, that I need to check in on? Are there any tests that we're about to launch that need, need um, more thrashing out in the hypothesis? Or um, uh, can I support design on any of the variants? Or if there's copy that needs to be um, prepared? So all sorts of little things to support new product features and testing. And then towards the end of the day, perhaps it's that's when Dallas comes online. So that's where Pizza Hut is headquartered. So it becomes a little bit more around meetings and 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 reporting on what we've done and where we're at with with um, all of our efforts. Okay, so is that with uh, Pizza Hut uh, 
Yeah, so we're part of Pizza Hut International and they're headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Is that kind of re- reporting in or is it more like uh, just day-to-day, this is what's going on, what do you think, what are you guys up to? More like a check-in? Yeah, it's... it's um, Almost like a stand-up, I guess. Yeah, that, that's probably the good way of looking at it. We're... Um, Within Pizza Hut International, where the we basically own the online journey. So, all of the there are over one hundred markets within Pizza Hut International, and all of them have got their own, to some degree, online um, experience. Pizza Hut Digital Ventures is trying to roll out a consistent, scalable, single solution across all of those markets, because a lot of those markets that have their have their own. Um, e-commerce solution, those are quite old now and there have been things that have been around for sometimes 10 years or longer. So we're trying to smoothen that out and um, working at the top with the largest markets to begin with and slowly, slowly, one by one, rolling out our, our solution across all of them. So we're a very important piece of the, of the strategy for Pizza High International. And um, as you can imagine, a massive investment for them. So they are very keen to check in on us and where we're at and make sure that we're making progress and, and also um, wanting to know sort of timelines around when a new market might come online. Um, if we're running a test and it's going to improve transactions and conversion, what is the uptick there? Um, any reforecasting that needs to be done of our expected e-commerce performance, all those sorts of things, they're um, checking in on, on us quite often. Related to that then, how do you how do you go about coming up with ideas and prioritizing tests? Yep, Particularly, that's... I think where, like you said, you've got all these different countries to look at. So, while we do have so many different markets to to worry about, um, probably the important thing is to is to know that we're quite a small team and we have to be quite lean, which means that prioritization comes down to where can we get the most bang for our buck. Um, in, in the larger markets, and that will be Japan, the United Kingdom, this is where we really need to look for opportunities to drive transactions. Because if we do, let's say we do the same test in, in, in a large market and then the same test in a small market, we're going to get so many more transactions and so much more revenue for, for a successful outcome in a large market than we are to in a small market. And what would be great to um, have a testing program in place for each of the markets and be able to optimize those individual markets for their customers. We really have to prioritize larger markets first and then to an extent, allow those smaller markets to inherit um, the, the new optimization or the new functionality that we've devised in the larger market. Obviously, just because something has worked in a larger market, that does not mean that it's going to work in a smaller market. So we're, we're very conscious of that. So instead what we do is if it works in a larger market, we've run a test, we've had a positive outcome, we've rolled out the feature, we've checked that it's, that it's, that it's clean and that it's continuing to, to work the way we expect it to. And now we say to the smaller market, maybe to their um, uh, franchisee, would you like this functionality? Um, it, it gave us this result in, in the UK or it gave us this result in Japan. And if they say that, that, that they think that that would be a good um, optimization for themselves as well, then we would... Um, turn on that feature to a test and just ensure that it didn't break um, their conversion or, or, or have a negative impact on their sales. If it's clean and it doesn't um, have a negative impact or anything observable, then we'll probably turn that feature on for that market and they will have it as well. 
So that's how we prioritize uh, the markets. Now, I think the second part of your question was how do we prioritize a particular feature? Yep. So, yeah, so ideas essentially at PhDV can come from anywhere. They, like, like I said earlier, they can come from ourselves or they can come from the markets themselves. Marketing teams are often a good source of, um, of input for ideas because they are uh, speaking to customers so frequently, right? So they have a lot of qualitative insights, whereas our team have the quantitative insights and the ability to look at data and come up with um, solutions there. So while well, ideas can come from anywhere and it's the, they kind of come to um, our product team to be assessed, like is it something that's possible? And then we will go and measure it. So what is the, is the, is the issue that, that, that someone's nominated actually an issue? Um, are we already tracking it? Is measuring in place that we can quantify how big an issue it is? If, if, if uh, tracking has not been set up or is not in place, um, then we'll go and do that and we'll run the run run it for a little while and then we'll pull down the data again and have a look and say, yeah, okay, this is probably a problem. Um, and then the next the next steps will be to um, hypothesize on what what we might test and how we might go about it. At that point we'll bring in we'll come back to product and design and come up with um, well, we have our control, but then we'll work out what the variants are and try and devise those. Now, that sounded like it was a pretty drawn-out process, but that tends to happen quite quickly. Um, and it's often very scrappy and very um, uh, lean and, you know, happens uh, with lots of whiteboards and, and, and markers. And we, we come up with solutions pretty quickly, um, given that the data is there to, to, to um, support that there's something we can do here. Yeah, I suppose if you've got the, the right people in place, um, people who are knowledgeable of the business, then yeah, if someone points out a particular, uh, you know, possible problem, everyone can probably quite quickly offer some sort of opinion on it or possible yeah, exactly. solution. Yeah, and, um, and, and we're not afraid to iterate. So if one, if uh, if we test and a test is not giving us a statistically significant result, then we'll then we'll go back to the drawing board and see what else we can do, or we'll or we'll roll on to the next step if it's not harmed anything. Yeah. So uh, I guess two little follow-up questions to that. Um, do you use much external data, you know, like customer feedback or research, or is most of what you do driven by uh, the data internally, internal feedback? I think that most of the data that I work with is um, site analytics uh, and uh, our UX teams are the ones who are probably more heavily focused on, on qualitative qualitative research and user feedback. We've not been in a, we're very, we're a very lean team. You might be surprised to hear that although we are, you know, a multinational food, food company, we're quite small compared to a lot of other tech teams, I would say out there doing something of a similar scale, um, particularly in analytics and, and design. Um, we're, we're, we're very heavy engineering focused and um, yeah, we try to do our best with the, with the, with the, you know, small amount of resources that we, we do have. Um, so the, the qualitative side of things, it definitely um, could be a little bit more robust. We, we try our best to, to, to reach out to customers when we can and, um, and you know, underline what they're saying and, and try and, and, and try, um, you know, receive ideas from that. But a lot of that is actually also done by the, by the franchisee and they feed ideas into us. So a little bit of that work is done for us. Um, obviously it's very important to, to have uh, user insight because data is no good unless, um, 
it's kind of out of context, isn't it? You can draw a conclusion from the data, but unless someone really also gives you some context to it, you could very easily draw the wrong conclusion or, or um, come up with the wrong solution based on what you've seen in the data. So um, we do try to combine as much as possible, qualitative and quantitative. But um, yeah, like I said, it's not always the easiest thing to do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can always uh, make mistakes reading data and customers. Again, you can't just take it at face value. Um, customers never really tell you exactly what they want. No. Um, <laughs> or they, you know, they tell you what they think they want. And then when you really start, they go, well, actually, no, we don't like this at all. <laughs> yeah. Why did you do this? So, you know, it's, I guess with Peter, it might be, you know, you could, you could do a survey on social media or something and everyone would be like, yeah, we want this sort of pizza. We want mm. a, uh, I don't know. Brown and banana. Uh, yeah, like a, a banana stuffed crust or something. And everyone goes, actually, <laughs> that could be amazing. Or peanut butter stuffed crust. Probably a little bit more realistic, I guess. And everyone goes, that's good. amazing. It gets released on the site and everyone goes, this is awful. Why have Pizza had done this? It's, it was mm. a terrible idea. And it's like, well, it, it came from, came from the customers us. yeah that's true so actually you make a good point um around the the menu sort of stuff unfortunately i'd love to get more involved with um working out what 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 it is that customers want from the food standpoint but that that's all handled by each of the markets because they all have their own menus um and i actually think that the menu differentiation across all the different markets is a really good analogy for um e-commerce if you think about it if you go to um, Japan or Malaysia they're going to have very local very specific uh, pizza toppings that you wouldn't find in the UK for example um, you've got you've got a lot of um, meaty bacon products on um, the UK and if you go to India a lot of it's vegetarian so um, in many ways the menus are optimized for the local markets um, but I just said earlier that the online experience we try to keep it as consistent and scalable as possible so um, if we were to roll out testing programs in each of the individual markets for, um, for their customers specifically, then we'd probably end up with a similar situation to the menus, but in the online experience where it's completely different everywhere you go. And that's something that we, because we are, we are trying to create a consistent online brand around the world that um, we have to kind of try to avoid doing, even though realistically from a CRO standpoint, that might be the best thing to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think when we uh, when we first met, uh, when you when you did a presentation, uh, I think mm-hmm. you mentioned something about a um, it was a giant cookie that worked particularly well. Ah, uh, Nutel- Nutella breadsticks. Yeah, it might have been that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, we did a in basket upsell. Um, so customers have already added all the items to their basket. They've headed to the checkout and now we want to, um, I guess, prompt them to purchase, make a last minute purchase or something in the, um, in the, uh, basket. And, uh, one of those items that we, that we tested in, I think it was now in France from memory, uh, was a, um, Nutella breadstick. And that's not something we have on the menu in the UK. So what we were really testing here was the experience, but we were limited by, um, what was actually available in that market uh, menu. So, you know, that kind of creates a bit of a, a bias in your results when you don't have the same menu to test, but you're just trying to test an experience by prompting a, a menu item. When you're deciding whether a test has worked or not or is successful, what are what are the kind of main metrics that you're looking at um, for that? You know, is it 
is it average order values are you maybe sometimes looking at getting more just more orders through um or does it vary uh yep so each test will have okay so basically any test will have a hypothesis about what the expected outcome is so before we let's say we want to test uh, a color of a button green or red right and what you want to happen is currently the button is red. We think that a green button is going to encourage more people to, um, to click on, on this and, and progress through the funnel than currently is the case. So we, we, we have a control which is red, and we run a variant which is green, and then we see that um, the people who have clicked the green button um, go on to purchase more product or go on to convert at a higher rate than the people who who are presented with the red option. So we will actually break this down into multiple uh, steps so that we can actually understand what's going on. So essentially this could even be something that happens on the front page, on the home page or the landing page, wherever the customer has arrived. The first thing is a step conversion. So has the number of people who have clicked that button increased or has it not? Um, now, obviously, just clicking a button is not going to necessarily improve transactions. It's not necessarily going to drive more value. But what we want to happen is for people to move beyond this step in the funnel by making the button green. Has that happened? If that has happened, then what's then then what's then that's the step conversion result. Then we've got we've we've improved the click through rate for that button. Now now we'll go and look at conversion or or the basket size. So. Essentially, each test will be either a conversion test or a basket size test, and we have a different way of measuring those um, results in the end, um, statistically, to determine whether or not we've improved conversion or we've improved order values. So it won't, it, no test will necessarily be both, but if we do drive value and conversion at the same time, then that's a really good outcome. But yeah, so I, th I think that we look at micro-conversions throughout the entire experience that those customers who are, who are subject to the variant or control what their what their click through rates are, what their what their progression is, and and don't just look at the the broader picture of of more sales or more revenue. Yeah, okay, yeah, it makes sense. So yeah, you yeah. break it down into the micro conversions. You can say, well, yeah, we know this button generated ten percent more clicks, but yeah. it's uh, maybe the actual conversion rate at the end of the the journey was was lower. So, yes, exactly, and and that, yeah. So it's like using, um, you know, maybe a button button color is not the best example for this, but it, you know, where you use certain imagery and copy, um, it improves the click through. For an ad, for example, is probably a, I guess, a better example. Um, you can get people to click through ads more, you know, at a better rate by improving the copy, improving the image, uh, making it really Absolutely. appealing. But then when you look at the conversions and you go, well, actually, fewer people are converting on this, and you realize that all you've kind of done is manipulate people into clicking. And getting that first yeah, click, but, but not encourage them to buy. Yeah, and they, you know, might not be the the product they want or or anything. In fact, this reminds me of a of some adverts I've seen recently for mobile games, where the mm. advert has been a completely different game experience to the actual game. Ah, uh, that's not going to. Yeah, so they'd be <laughs> like they'd that. be looking at their metrics and they're probably going, "Our CPIs are incredible. These adverts are performing really, really well." And um, when they actually look at the game performance, they're like, "Well." people play the game like once and then they disappear. Yeah, that's a total vanity metric. Yeah, and if you're not uh, if you're not considering that whole kind of customer journey, looking you know from step A to step Z or whatever, um, mm. you you kind of miss out, you miss out on that.
and you don't realize that what you're doing at one end of the funnel is uh is just throwing away money basically absolutely and i think i touched on iteration earlier on um, one of the benefits of making sure that you look at the absolute the, the micro conversions towards um through through each variant um, it allows you to devise your next test if you just look at the overall picture of value and transactions and then you realize that um, this didn't go the way that I, that we thought it did. Unless you understand uh, how the behavior has changed in the variant more holistically, you're not really going to understand what's what's best to do next. You might kind of be able to throw your hands up in the air and say, "Well, that didn't work. What do we do now?" But if you can kind of get a, if you improve the click-through rate with that color change, for example, then maybe there's something in the next step in the in the funnel where you can say, "Ah, maybe now." Now we see that they're, that they're not clicking through on this new button or this new menu item or whatever, and you can start to devise more and more tests. Yes, yeah, so I suppose in the example of the upsell, actually, um, you might find loads of people click on that that upsell and add it to their basket, mm. but then the conversion rate drops, and you might actually see that you know you go well that you know fantastic result at first, loads of people are adding this uh, item to the basket, successful test. Then you look at the yeah. conversion rate and you realize conversions dropped. And it might be because the pricing wasn't too clear at the upsell uh, stage. Exactly. So they've clicked through to their basket and they've gone, hang on a minute, it's now like twice the cost that I was expecting to pay. And that's yeah. what caused them to drop off. Um, and if the customer can't make that link either, they don't think, oh, I'll just take off, the, take off the upsell. They suddenly think the, the whole order that I do want is now too expensive. Exactly. Don't make the customer think. <laughs> yeah. For companies who are quite new to CRO and testing, what, what are some key things that you should think they, that you think they should consider, uh, you know, right at the start? Okay. Well, probably the most important thing to have, have in place uh, is your measurement. So there's no point in testing something if you don't really know where you currently sit with, with, um, with your analytics. So having a robust uh, uh, measurement and analytics uh, program in place, I think is the most important thing to first of all address. Um, I think that there's a lot of sexiness around A-B testing and CRO and so forth. But unless you're already in a place where you're confident that you've got reliable um, measurement and analytics in place, I wouldn't, I wouldn't um, jump too headlong into, into CRO and testing. So that would be the first thing to take care of. Um, another, another point that I, I'm, I'm very guilty of myself and I'm quite interested in, in improving <laughs> in my own, in my own thinking is I think that a lot of people, when they begin to understand their own website, when they look at the funnel, they look at the traffic that they're getting, they look at where it, um, moves through the various steps in the funnel towards the checkout and transactions. Um, it can be very tempting to address problems that are very early on in the funnel, right? So that's going to be the place that you, in your entire journey that you see the largest percentage of traffic dropping off. Um, and therefore that if you fix the problem there, the thinking goes, if you fix the problem there, that you're going to have more people moving through the funnel and you're going to have a higher conversion rate. Now that might be true, but also um, the people who are having problems later on in your funnel, who are not getting through to transact and through, through perhaps through the checkout and these sorts of areas, those customers are a lot more dedicated to finishing their transaction and, and buying from you than probably the majority of people landing on the homepage, right? So I would try and first of all, get a pretty holistic understanding of where your drop-offs are throughout the funnel, but then try and 
maybe support those customers who are getting quite far through your funnel, but then dropping off. Try and find out why they're having problems because no matter how much you improve the the, um, the step conversion of the of the majority of traffic coming through, this problem that sits late in the funnel is going to affect everybody unless you address it. So I would, in a sense, work, not always, but sometimes just work backwards from the problems that, that are affecting your, your most progressed uh, customers. Yeah, then, definitely. I think um, yeah. if you've got people with products in their baskets and they're not converting, if you can improve conversion rate, you know, on the, on the actual checkout stage, you know that's going to give you money because Absolutely. there are people yep. there ready to spend. Whereas if you yep. focus on really top end of the funnel, people who have just clicked on an ad or just landed on your website, you know, they, they might, you know, if you, if you're trying to focus on getting them to, to actually view a pizza or view a, an item of clothing at that stage, you still don't really know what that customer is there for. Exactly. Um, you know, they, they might, you know, you don't, necessarily well i mean you can obviously track through different channels and things but it's it's difficult to to really think you know once all these people are on the home page what are they trying to do at this stage and so what is the next optimization to make whereas yeah if you go through to actual product pages and improve the add to basket and then improve the go to checkout and then improve uh, you know checkout completion those yeah. are bits that you know straight away are going to generate you money whereas if you're driving really bad traffic no amount of optimization at that end of the funnel is going to make much difference. Absolutely. And you can see where the, um, the temptation will lie. If you're losing 80% of the sessions on the first, on the first page, then you're going to think, Oh, then I have a massive problem right here. I need to address this. I need to get customers looking at product uh, sooner and, and, and get them um, past the landing pages and in, 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 into later stages of the funnel. But um, yeah, as you just, as you just reiterated, that's not always going to be, the case and you don't necessarily understand those customers particularly well either at that point you're much better off focusing on those customers who have matured through your funnel and are close to transacting but for some reason are having problems doing so focus on them first yeah i mean i know it's, it's obviously not this black and white but you could argue that uh, people on the home page who have done nothing um are, are possibly there because of a result of poor advertising poor marketing whereas the people who yeah. have clicked on a product they've added a product to a basket if they're not converting then then it's a a case of it's a bad web experience obviously it's not it's not quite like that people change their mind people look at prices and go well actually maybe i'll go to this other site because i know they've got a discount but it's kind of one way to to help i guess people look at it yeah yeah absolutely Encouraging those people who have who have uh, spent a little bit more time on your page than those who have just come along, I guess, is, is the underlying message there. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's similar to you know, using pop-ups and things. Um, if you, you know, you get uh, loads, loads of websites will, will put a pop-up in front of you pretty much as soon as you've landed on the site. And you'll be like, you know, sign up and we'll give you 10% off. Sign up to our newsletter, we'll give you 10% off. And at that stage, you've got no idea about what that you know you might not know what the site is might be your first visit just by waiting 30 seconds to to display that pop-up if they're still on that site for uh, after 30 seconds they probably are actually browsing a little bit and probably much more likely to actually capture not only email addresses but email addresses of people who are a little bit more engaged yeah absolutely that's a good point Cool. So, um, are there any common myths or misconceptions you see about uh, CRO and, and testing? Uh, yeah, I often 
hear from certain from certain um, teams and quarters that um, uh, that there's sort of the site can be optimized that it, that that you can get to a point whereby you're um, there's there's that, that there's diminishing returns in in CRO work if you know what I mean by that. Um, we we have quite without going into any numbers we have a quite um, uh, strong conversion rate on, on the majority of our sites and um, it can be um, often it can be like oh well we have it, it, it's pretty crazy to think that you can get a higher conversion rate than that but it's not always just about conversion rate as we as we talked about it's also about value. Um, and no site is ever fully optimized or you, or you never get to a point whereby there's no more work to do in CRO. There's always um, advancements in the technology. There's improvements to um, uh, the experience that can be made. And there's always further and deeper understanding of your customers. Your customers as well are not static. They change over time um, and they've come to expect more from your, from your experience than, than, um, than perhaps you're currently offering, uh, particularly in our space. Um, as you'd be aware, there's a lot of um, food aggregators. So I'm referring to Just Eat and Deliveroo, Uber Eats, and those guys are doing a fantastic job in their online experience. They have very big teams, and they, and they do they do set the bar quite high for for food ordering experiences. So where um, while we do well, I believe we do well um, converting the traffic that we do get. Our customers are constantly looking for um, improvements in the experience, and and when you have such uh, uh, excellent um, competitors that are driving fantastic experiences and always striving to improve, they're one hundred percent online focused. Unlike us, we're also a restaurant business and a delivery business. Um, that there's there's always going to be improvements need to be made and you're never at a point where you can sit on your laurels and say, ah, okay, cool. That's the website done. Yeah. So just keep experimenting, keep looking for opportunities, keep listening to your customers, I think is a really important thing to do. Yeah, definitely. I think there's always, there's always something you can come up with and and kind of test, even if it's, because I I think a lot of, the problem a lot of people have is, um, especially if they're relatively new to, to CRO and testing, they do kind of view it as uh, you're changing, you know, the, the color of buttons, position of buttons, images, copy. Yeah. Those kind of tend to be the, the main things that get mentioned when actually there's so much more to it. Um, and I think this probably stems from people using A-B testing tools, which are very, which are front end, um, which, which yeah, work on true, the front yeah. And there's no actual development required. So when you, when you really start to think about it and you go, well, actually, maybe we want to test this and suddenly you realize that there's testing, there's a development involved. And that's where I think there might be a bit of a gap there in people's understanding. That's um, a very good point. Yeah. And then maybe they don't view it as a testing thing. Maybe they think, well, actually that's because we want to change the website, the actual, how the website is built and the structure of it. That's a product thing. That's not a, an A-B testing thing. Yes, you're absolutely right. So um, when we do receive, as I mentioned earlier, um, ideas can come from anywhere, right? So if we're talking about a new piece of functionality on the site, um, there can be a kind of belief that, oh, if we're going to invest this time and money in building this new um, tool or uh, service on the site, that once it's done, it's it's going to be on the site. 
Now, while that might to an extent need to be the case because of the level of investment that's taken place in, um, uh, in building that item, never is it going to be built right the first time. So testing has to be a part of that product roadmap. So just because you've got to have something on the site doesn't mean that you can't put that to your users and see what the, the, the experience is like and iterate on small, small parts of it or even the whole, the whole part of it. Maybe, maybe uh, the, the understanding beforehand was that this was going to be an improvement, that having this additional feature on the site was going to drive more transactions and sales. Why not test it? Keep some, some customers from not seeing it and let some other customers see it and see if uh, holistically that improves things. Um, of course, I think that's a little bit of a, of a, uh, a um, uh, sledgehammer approach to testing. It should be actually more about the finite, small, smaller details of the new feature that you're doing and trying to optimize that feature for your customers. But, but also as well, why not just see whether or not that feature has done anything for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's, there's always change. Like people want to make changes to their websites. They go, we need to rebuild uh, the sign-up process or something. You know, we don't think that's working as well as we we wanted to. Do it too. We want to add in, you know, postcode lookup, email verification. We want to give people the chance to pick a welcome offer or something. Um, yeah. You know, a pr- promotion that they can use on their first purchase. And yeah, I think a lot of businesses go, that's what we want to do for our, you know, version two of our website or version three, whatever. That's what we're going to build and put it in place. Let's just turn it on. (laughs) Yeah, and it kind of, because it goes into the product side of the business first and the product and development side, they don't think like marketers really. And they don't think, well, maybe we should test this. It's just kind of, that's the next thing. It just goes into their their roadmap. Yeah, exactly. The other thing is you can often have a um, relationship um, concern to to manage when, um, let's say, a particular team, maybe a non-tech team has asked for something to be done on site. And then you turn around and say, yeah, that's all well and good, but we're actually going to have to test to see whether or not that's a positive, um, um, uh, you know, addition to the, to the service. And if you do test it and it doesn't necessarily, maybe it's a bad result for them, then they're not necessarily going to be your biggest fan um, because you've just told them that the thing that they wanted on their site is hurting business. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, I mean, this is leading us into the, the next question, which was uh, what are the big and, big and common problems and, and mistakes you see in CRO strategies? And I think, well, I don't want to just rant and, and go on about all the stuff I've, I've experienced in companies that I think is wrong. Yeah. There's also stuff related to what we've just talked about, where there might be like a regulatory change or something in the industry. And so you have to put something up on your website and that's another thing where people don't think to test it. You know, yes. if you're told you have to, you have to show terms and conditions, like full terms and conditions to everyone um, who clicks on this offer as soon as they click it, it has to be available. And there are different ways of, of showing that, but then obviously uh, the legal team gets involved and compliance team and mm. they say, well, it has to be done like this. So these are our options. And then you've got the CRO team going, yeah, but actually we think we can build it like this or like this. Um, can, can we test it? So, so still, still have it, but have it in its best form. Yeah, exactly. Rather than the, the kind of legal way, which is we've been told it has to be available straight away. There it is. Mm. Put it, I'll put it up on the screen. Um, yeah, precisely. It's kind of, yeah. I guess, what's happened with like cookie, you know, cookie banners and things and a lot of GDPR yes. banners. 
it's like this is a requirement we're going to put this like front and center in the screen um and actually people people still find them annoying just like we did yeah they do yeah i don't know what what was it 10 years ago when the uh when the first cookie stuff happened and so all sites put that little banner which just said we use cookies okay Hmm. and loads of people were like well this is just it's just annoying you know we're just going (laughs) to click okay fine and now with GDPR, it's like stepped up another level where people are still going, yeah, okay, click accept. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's the, yeah, you raise a really good point. Just because something has to be on the site doesn't mean that, um, well, first of all, what's the impact of it? So always measure. So just because something is mandatory and you have to have it doesn't mean you can't work out if it's doing you any harm. Um, not to say that you'll get anywhere in not having it uh, with that with that evidence, but um also the way that it's been built or designed might might tickle the compliance boxes and legal boxes but even if we want to continue to you know fit the fit the compliance rules there's got to be ways to improve the look and feel maybe the functionality of whatever the whatever the mandatory feature is there's always ways to test that as well and testing should not um take a back seat to to um you know, those things that you have to have on your site. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's kind of the end of my rant section. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, back to, uh, back to you. Um, what are the, yeah, what are those, what are those mistakes you see? Probably one, one, one thing that I see come up quite often is um, bad site speed. Nothing, in my opinion, nothing is more important to the user experience than having a site load quickly. Whenever a new feature is released or new images or something are added to the page, um, particularly if it's part of a test, then the variant versus the control, the variant might actually load a lot more slowly than the, um, than the control does. So really keep that in mind that if you're trying to improve the experience that you don't actually, although you might have built a nicer user experience in the variants, um, have you impacted the site load speed? Because that is always going to impact um, usability and, and impact conversion ultimately. So make sure that that's consistent wherever you can across your variants. Um, that would be the biggest one, I think, in my opinion, from um, what I've seen happen in testing. Um, another one is, um, like I've mentioned um, about PHDB, we're, we're in multiple different markets and... Um, there are lots of different teams who have access to, say, our Google Analytics accounts um, or our databases, and they are looking at the site um, at, in parallel. Now, while our PhDV analytics team is centralized, our market teams also will look at something. And because we kind of work for a different company or a different, or a different business, there might not necessarily be a consistent approach to measuring um, in those different markets. So that problem could, um, could be present in large organizations whereby um, different departments or different divisions have got their own analytics people, their own marketing people looking at site performance and coming up with different um, conclusions because they're not measuring things necessarily in the same way. So um, I think it's really important that you either centralize that effort to measure and, and analyze so that everyone in that team is performing that work in the same way and you're getting the same results and you're consistent in the way that you look at things, or that you come up with a set of guidelines that everybody adheres to and you train people in how to do things in the same way so that um, 
so that you you can have some confidence that the um, level of measurement and interpretation of data is consistent. Because if you don't do that and then you run tests on it, um, you could be in a world of trouble. Yep, definitely makes sense. Yep. Um, the other thing is we probably spend our whole day st- uh, staring at our, our MacBooks or our PCs or whatever, and we're thinking about the user experience on the web. But uh, all your customers on the web, maybe not. They could be on mobile and tablet. Keep that in mind and always um, double down on your, on your, on your investigation and, and, and um, look at other devices. Yeah, you're right. You know, it's really easy to make the mistake of just looking over your site again and again on your laptop. Yes. Um, and just forgetting that actually people people might be browsing it yeah, on, on a phone or a tablet. Um, and then you've also got to consider that people might browse it on one device and purchase on another. So Yes, that's true. Yeah, particularly with um, uh, a lot of kind of organic and... Um, paid traffic will we'll maybe look at their phone on their commute for a particular product and then they'll purchase that item when they get to their desk or when they get home and get out their laptop. So um, you've got to make sure that you're optimizing the right feature for the right device or audience. Yep, definitely. I'm a big fan of um, simplicity in, in variance. So make sure that you're not changing too many things between your control and your variant. If you add in three or four different changes and call that variant one. And then in variant two, you've got three or four more different changes. Then you're not going to know what, what change you made that's going to improve the, that's going to deliver the improved result. If you make four or five different changes and put that into a variant, you might get a better result from your variant, but what exactly was it in your variant that improved the outcome? Make one small change in each variant and make it as simple as possible so that you can, honestly compare side by side against control what it was that delivered you with your, with your result. Yeah, definitely. I, I'm going to contradict that slightly, I guess, but um, yeah. in that, I think what you can do is a complete redesign that, that can work as a test where you're, you know, you might be I don't know, rebranding or you're going down a completely different design route you're not yeah you're not making four or five changes to the same page you're literally going we're going to scrap this page we're going to do something completely new and different to see if people respond to a different uh, almost like a different brand or a different different style of of page that's, yeah, I totally that's agree where you that. can do that yeah. But, but yeah you're right there's there's no point changing like the image the headline and the button exactly all the cop- copy as well yeah y- yeah because you have no idea which one's actually uh, driven the improvement and also what you might not realize is that one of those things you've changed might actually be decreasing the conversion for a different uh, user segment yeah precisely in isolation that might have been a bad change but you don't know that because it's masked by the overall improvement of the of the full variant yep yeah, yeah exactly. but i completely agree with your with your with your point about um a completely different experience and the same is true for a new feature like a completely new feature you can't just test a little bit of that new feature, you have to actually implement the entire feature and test it against either having it or not having it. So um, yeah, what, what I was more referring to was when you're making minor changes on a site just to improve maybe the readability or or uh, the click-through rate. Yeah, the kind of more traditional A-B testing, your day-to-day exactly. testing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so how do you think things are going to change or do you think things will be changing in the next kind of 12 months in uh, they most definitely 
Yes, they most definitely will be. And if you'd asked me this question, I would have said the same thing three or four weeks ago, but I would have been less emphatic about it. Um, coronavirus uh, and the lockdown uh, is going to have an enormous impact on e-commerce. Um, and will, in fact, actually, at the risk of sounding a bit callous, it's probably good news for people in our industry because um, organizations that are perhaps um, legacy or pre-internet or bricks and mortar um, businesses have had to shift to pretty much 100% online um, e-commerce in the recent weeks. And that's something that they probably um, saw on their horizon several years away, maybe maybe even like 10, 20 years time will be 100% online and we won't have stores anymore. But now they're actually there today and they're going to have to um, adjust to that because even though I think things will go back to a relative level of normalcy in the coming months, um, the number of people who have never purchased online before or, or, or are not in the habit of purchasing online have had to do that in this in this time. And now they are, uh, for lack of a better word, converted, if you know what I mean. Yep. So um, the emphasis on, on online sales for, for companies that are, um, that are legacy or bricks and mortar is only going to be increased massively um, in, the coming, in the coming years. Um, one of the major changes that I see happening um, will be the, uh, not only on, on um, uh, investment in their websites and on their tools, but investment in their people. I think that the um, in in some organisations uh, and and not ours by the way, but some other organisations, um, the the e-commerce experience is is kind of a separate department. So you will have operations and you'll have the stores and etc. And then and then over here you'll have um, e-commerce. Where I see that changing is that e-commerce will now sit above everything. Uh, if all sales are through the internet or if the vast majority of sales are on, on the website, then there's no point in treating e-commerce and, and, and your web assets as a kind of another department. It is your business. It has to be at the center. It has to sit uh, above everything else. And um, I see that um, companies will start bringing in chief data officers. If they don't already have them, they'll start bringing in analytics officers into their executive teams and putting much more emphasis on the data that they capture and being able to interpret that data and make optimizations and, and improve their business from, from, um, from there. Yeah, really um, all valid stuff. I think, you know, over the next 12 months, the expectation would have been, uh, you know, regardless of, of coronavirus, the expectation would have been that e-commerce would keep growing, um, mobile commerce growing, um, but I think this has just been a massive shock to the system. And yeah, all, all those businesses you thought, yeah, we know we need to get to it. We're kind of working on it, but it's a two-year plan. Are probably panicking a little bit and going, right, we, we actually need to get this sorted. And we, we've got to be, right, yeah. our business needs to be sustainable from the e-commerce side, not the bricks and mortar side. Precisely, yeah. They, they, they need to shift from the... Um, thinking that the, that the e-commerce is another store to thinking that it's our only store. Yeah. And I think um, or it's our flag, it's our flagship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the yeah, best way of putting it really. Um, I know there's a, one of the shoe, shoe store, uh, shoe stores in the UK. Um, they kind of have, have taken that approach and um, particularly when it comes to things like delivery and click and collect. Mm -hmm. Um 
So now all the, the stock from every single store and all the warehouses and stuff is all linked up to the, the e-commerce site. So that when, uh, when people put in their postcodes and get a delivery estimate, it's able to say, you know, you can collect from this store or this store, or you can have it delivered in uh, like next day delivery yeah. for free because it's, we, we know we've got it really close to you. Or yeah. if you want it for free, it's going to be a three to five day delivery because we know that the only stock of this is in our warehouse in like Scotland and you're based in that's, you know, Kent or something. Yeah, that's that's one thing that's really important is just managing those expectations with with deliveries and how long people can expect to get them, um, because you are changing from where whereby your customers probably walked into your store and picked it up on the same day. Maybe it only took them, you know, a few minutes to come in and and get what they needed. Now you're the downside is obviously that last mile. Um, so companies that nail that part of the user experience are going to are going to um, do very well. Yeah, especially when you consider uh, if you know if you're an international brand and you're considering delivery times. You know, in the UK, I think we're getting very, very used to Amazon Prime's uh, next day delivery, um, and a lot of other companies being able to deliver either next day or day after. But then, when you think about the size of the UK, we're, we're pretty tiny. Then you look at the US, and that speed is still. Uh, you know, obviously Amazon are set up to do it pretty quickly. Um, for a lot of companies, that it's it's going to be difficult. And you're going to think, well, do you do you have warehouses in different places? Do you have how do you yeah. manage store stock? And it, it is more difficult. Um, and I guess that's that's one one consideration if you're if you're a brand that's like headquartered in one country and you're expanding into other countries. That's another thing you've got to consider. Like delivery times are not the same. And the expectations are different as well. That's yeah, that's exactly right. So I'm from Australia, as you probably could have told, and um, I think we have a similar we're similar culture, obviously, to the UK and the United States, but we're far less densely populated. And um, one thing that um, surprised me when I moved over to the UK was just the absolute speed at which you receive your deliveries in Australia. A two week period is not not is not a long time to have to wait. For, for an online purchase to arrive at your house and people are very much used to that. But if uh, you told a British person that they had to wait two weeks for the delivery, they would probably wouldn't buy from you. Personally, I've got to Go that ahead. point with um, Prime Now where I'm like, I, I know it would take me like an hour to get to the store, buy the thing I want and come back or I can have someone deliver it to me in two hours and I'm kind yeah. of willing, <laughs> I'm willing to wait that hour, that extra hour yeah. um, but because I know I can get it so easily. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely uh, going to be probably one of the harder sides of of e-commerce, I think. And I'm glad I'm not so much involved in it because it would be, um, it's a tricky logistics problem. Yeah. But I mean, fortunately, I mean, I I don't know exactly how it all all works at at Pizza Hut, but obviously the products are made at stores that have uh, a certain delivery area. So yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. They should only be taking orders in that delivery area. Um, otherwise, something's possibly, you know, hopefully just gone wrong, and they just have to no, sort it. But yeah, that's the customer's um, location determines which store that they'll be ordering from. So they, that that that's always um, uh, within the designated zone for that store. Yeah, and so the only thing really to to be worried about is, um, you know, massive traffic issues or I guess massive sudden massive quantities of orders. Yes, order volumes and driver availability. 
they're yeah. probably the main problems. Which um, which I would have thought for the most part is uh, you know kind of scheduled in. Like you know you you kind of know which days and which evenings are going to be uh, you know really busy periods, really quiet periods. But there's always those those one off incidents, um, and I guess stuff like coronavirus again um, has probably. Um, well, I think it, I think it has had a, a quite a big impact on on food delivery. Um, yes, which definitely. A yeah. lot of businesses would just not have expected, and and it's probably just raised the level every single day. Yeah. So for us, we've shifted to one hundred percent delivery and one hundred percent online payments. Whereas before, that it was it was it was largely that way, but it wasn't one hundred percent. So that's actually increased the pressure that's now on. Um, uh, the drivers and the, and, and the driver availability. So um, it's, it's, an, it's been an interesting problem. It was one that was very difficult to kind of understand what the impact would be before it happened. Now that we're a few weeks into it and we're kind of beginning to see um, new buying trends from customers, it's, we're beginning to be able to predict a little bit better what we can expect from, from, from our peak times, which is usually Friday and Saturday evenings. And um, and better better equip the stores to um, to know what they need to do in advance of that. Yeah, now you've got the data, you can learn from it, and uh, and hopefully, well, not hopefully, but if this sort of thing does happen again, um, you'd be in a better position to um, to probably tackle that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So, um, have you got any pet peeves when it comes to marketing? Uh, I do actually. Uh, I had to think about this earlier, and one thing I can't stand is when you go onto it's, it's usually on um, newspaper sites or, or news websites uh, and you get a billion pop-ups and ads dropping down and things encroaching on, on, on what you're trying to read, like the article you've looked up. Um, and oftentimes they'll have a video at the top of the uh, news article. And if I scroll down, to, and it'll play automatically, which I also dislike, but if you scroll down to uh, read the rest of the article, that video will now pop down to the, right, to the bottom right corner and continue playing. Um, like. I've scrolled down. I don't want to see the video anymore. Go away. Just, just absolutely crowded experience. Just, I have to click five or six different things before I can actually do what it is that I came there to do. And more often than not, I don't even bother reading the rest of the article. I'll go and look for that same bit of information on a different site um, because I'm just so turned off by that experience. Yeah, it's uh, you're ruining the user experience by trying to put what they want in front of you. Um, even though you, yeah. you've, you've clicked through to read an article and they're saying, yeah, but sign up for a newsletter and watch this video. Um, yeah. And sometimes the video is not actually related or not, you know, it's not directly related to the article, but it might be related to the topic. Um, yes. And they'll, they'll, they'll want to play you a 30 second car commercial as well before you see oh, the yeah. video, if it is related to the article. So and that at, that's, at that stage, you can't even pause it and get rid of it. Uh, Cause no. if you click on it, you open up the ad instead. Um, yeah, all no, you can do is leave the site. Yeah, I uh, completely agree. I know that most days I will, I do a search for Man United. Um, I check yeah. the, you know, the latest, latest news for Man United and I tend to open up like 10 tabs at once. Um, you know, I open up all the, all the articles that I, that I want to read and then suddenly, you know, my laptop's crashing because you've got all these videos and, and everything and, and uh, uh, those ads on the side. Um all of that trying to load at once. Um, yep. And it's just, uh, yeah, super annoying. Yeah. I definitely think there needs to be some um, better conversion rate optimization analytics going on there. Yeah, definitely. 
<laughs> um, and if you could kill off one particular marketing channel or tactic uh, as a consumer, do you have one? Not sure, actually. Um, I mean, I suppose arguably it would be that tactic of uh, yeah, well, hammering yeah, you with every pop-up you can. At risk of repeating myself, yeah, that kind of pop-ups that get in the way of what you're there to do on the page, I think have got to be the most annoying way of getting traffic to your site. Um, what are they called? Um, uh, the big banner ads and things like that that just take up the entire screen, um, particularly on mobile. Yeah, I can't them, Splash. Splash, yes, I absolutely hate them. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially if, if, well, yeah, I find it particularly annoying when uh, it takes a little bit longer to load as well. Mm. So you've actually seen a little bit of the website you want to look at, you start scrolling, and then suddenly you're hit with a, uh, a full-page ad. Um, yeah. You might even click on accidentally then. And all the click-throughs for that are um, converting at 0% because nobody's come. They'll come to your site and they're like, I did not mean to click that because it took up my entire screen. I was actually trying to close it, so I'm out of here. And yeah. so you've, you've paid for the traffic and now you're, um, you're getting nothing out of it. Yeah, I don't exactly. understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, uh, this great stuff. Um, really, really interesting stuff about conversion optimization and, and testing. Um, been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. It's been a pleasure being on. Thank you. So as you heard, Pizza Hut is a great example of a business that has centralized the analytics and conversion element of their business and has a team dedicated to improving their online ordering experience. This team doesn't run advertisements. They're not, they're not really a marketing team. They just have free reign to test and optimize that website for conversion at the highest order values they can get. The key things you need to look out for if you're, if you're going to run conversion optimization are, number one, get your analytics and reporting set up correct. Obviously, you need to get everything tracked properly, but you also need to make sure they're tracked in the same way and with the same terminology across different countries or platforms, app versus website, for example. It's really surprising how many different definitions of CPL and CPA I see. Two, don't worry so much about top of the funnel, at least not initially. You might panic when you see 60% of your site visitors disappear without even viewing a product, but you actually want to look at those people who are abandoning your checkout first. The 10 or so percent of people who have added products to their baskets got to the checkout page and then something has scared them off before they finalize the purchase. Work on these guys to see immediate revenue and then work backwards up the funnel. Look at people who add products to baskets, then people who review products, then people, uh, then think about how you can get more people viewing products. Finally, you don't need to invest heavily in third party tools. Um, you should be able to get enough data through Google Analytics to identify your initial opportunities and Google Optimize is free as well. So you, you can run your first tests without any investment at all, really. That's it for today. If you enjoyed the episode, please do rate the podcast and you can subscribe on the Customers Who Click website for new episodes and all sorts of freebies and extra content I'll be giving away. If you've got any questions about conversion optimization, send them through to will at customerswhoclick.com and I'll get them answered for you. In the next episode, I'm speaking to Nick Truman at Spec Digital about SEO. But until then, keep those customers clicking.